When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Madison Malone-Kircher. And I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. Um, on today's show, we are going to be taking you on a wild journey that starts with a pretty innocuous cover of a Nina Simone classic and ends with alleged embezzlement and somehow involves one vice president, Kamala Harris. I, Rachel, that's a Mad Libs. Like, <laughs> that's a fill in the blank paragraph, like add a noun, add an adverb, remember what an adverb is, then add an adverb. It's amazing because the description gets at perhaps 4% of the story. <laughs> Mostly, though, it's a story about how when you find yourself falling into an internet K-hole of drama and mess, like the one Rachel just so eloquently described in brief, the smartest thing you can do, honestly, is to take a beat, take a breath, and do a little bit of your own research. The reality of events usually ends up looking different than, say, the original viral tweet might have indicated. But first, we simply have to talk about Madison's absolute favorite topic. The Bachelor franchise. (laughs) In the outline for today's show, you wrote Batch, B-A-C-H. And for a brief fleeting moment, I thought we were going to talk about Bach, which (laughs) I thought, okay, I'm ready. I can vibe with that. (laughs) I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, We're not talking about Bach. We are talking about Batch, the most important thing in the world. Since the late Baroque. (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway, the reason we're talking about this is because on Monday, Rachel Lindsay, the first Black Bachelorette, did a huge As Told To interview with Allison P. Davis. And the top line of it is shit's fucked up. The real kind of meat of it is that Rachel really held nothing back. There were uh, no holds barred. Like, it was full of incredible details. And kind of just really outlined how terribly this franchise has treated her. It sort of starts out in present day-ish. She lays out this story with that interview with Chris Harrison, defending Rachel Kirkconnell, attending a racist party in antebellum Southern dress. Yes. Did I get that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Good job. I'm so proud of you. I'm actually really proud of you. So the core of the story, at least my understanding of it as a, bachelor bachelorette neophyte is that she's calling out the toxicity of the show's fandom yes and there's perhaps no one better acquainted with it than rachel Lindsay. i'm gonna give you a brief outline of her time on the bachelorette but if you guys want to know more then you can always listen to our bachelor episode where in which i give a mini uh master's thesis on my theory of the bachelor (laughs) but as i said before rachel Lindsay's the first black bachelorette She was cast on a season of The Bachelor with a white lead. In this piece, she talks about 
how the producers approached her, how from the beginning they were very aware of her place as one of the first Black contestants with a really accomplished career. She is a lawyer and was working with a really prestigious law firm. And it was kind of just a story that had not been told on The Bachelor yet. She goes into all her hesitations with it. And the way that she was kind of treated on next season, which is she kind of always knew that she wasn't ever going to marry him, and the kind of way they framed her disputes with other contestants in this way of, like, Black woman is aggressive and cold as this white woman is crying. So this is her Stop doing that, people. White people. We got got to stop doing that. Truly. And so she goes into this, and then she's approached to be the bachelorette, and she has, like, a full hesitation about it. She's like, I don't think I want to do this. This franchise has just... I, I don't think it's ready for that. But... She, like, goes home, and these people at her church are like, my daughter's really excited to see you because she's never seen someone like her do this. And so she does The Bachelorette, and it does not go well. It's impossible to summarize, like, that season, but, like, there are racist contestants. Race has made a plot line in a way that is, like, deeply harmful to Rachel herself. Her final choice that she ends up marrying is framed as kind of, like, a backup to this white man because they really want to focus on this white man who is like objectively mediocre. Basically she's not treated well. And then that doesn't even get into the bachelor fandom of it all. Otherwise known as bachelor nation. But Rachel in this piece with Alison P Davis makes a distinction between bachelor nation and bachelor clan clan with a K. I was going to say in case it's not very obvious. (laughs) Yes. She says, Bachelor Clan is a hateful, racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, and homophobic. They are afraid of change. They are afraid to be uncomfortable. They are afraid when they get called out. What she kind of gets at is the way in which the Bachelor franchise, this like 19, 20-year-old franchise, has cultivated this toxic audience. And in wanting to kind of modernize or cravenly capitalize on the groundswell of support for like diverse leads they want to have their cake and eat it too which is to not alienate Mm -hmm. their core toxic audience but have this lead who their audience is going to attack over and over and over again even once she leaves the show right because she got bullied off of instagram correct after her season Yeah, so Rachel ends up, after the show, being really involved in Bachelor Nation. She, like, does podcasts. She's kind of actually trotted out as, like, look at this thing that we did. But she's also consistently criticizing and pushing the franchise to be better. This brings up sort of an interesting point we talk about when we talk about a lot of online celebrities or celebrities who then go on to have big online presences is that fans start to feel this weird sense of entitlement to every and all aspects and moments of their lives. Yes. And they feel very possessive of this That's thing a good way to put it. that they consume and in their possessiveness, they don't I mean they don't like change. And they don't like being pushed because things like the bachelor or reality television in general are kind of framed as this like comfort fluff thing. And so people don't want to think critically about the things that they're consuming because they're not really taking you super seriously anyway. But the showrunners in always looking to broaden their audience want to be able to have 
black people be the lead or have just like black people on the show or just like don't want to be called out for being actively racist. But what they don't want to do is have to actually deal with this toxic audience that they've created and that they are putting this black lead in front of. Like they are opening this person up to a firing squad and wanting to be clapped for. Starting off with a real light one today. Super light. Just, you know, some frivolous reality television and the incredibly terrible audiences that they cultivate that they don't want to alienate, but that they are actively trying to diversify while not acknowledging that you can't diversify racism. They take it offline, too. I feel like we should note, and and Rachel Lindsay points this out in her piece, like, she had to hire security, personal security, Mm -hmm. to quite literally protect her physically. Yes. It's not just, I think, to think about hatred online, it often gets watered down in people's minds to, oh, trolls and name calling and just mute them, block them, get over. No, this is very real. It is mentally, emotionally, and physically damaging. And I can't wait to read Rachel Lindsay's book. Honestly, yeah, please. <laughs> like, I will be first in line to pre-order that tell-all because I cannot recommend this piece enough. There's just a lot of details. Like, if you watch The Bachelor, you'll want to know. But even if you don't, there's... I mean, Madison, you you were reading this piece and you were like, wow, I you pitched this idea and I was like, another Bachelor idea? And then you read the piece and you were like, okay, this franchise is wild. Messy, messy, messy. But that's enough on uh, racism for today. After the break, we'll be back with more racism, a different kind of racism, or at least respectability politics, whatever. Specifically, we'll be talking about the drama that unfolded on Twitter over the weekend after Chloe Bailey of the iconic duo Chloe and Halle did a Juneteenth tribute um, set to a cover of Nina Simone's Feeling Good that went viral for a few... Maybe like 27 different reasons. We'll explain all 27 of those after the break. It's a new life for me. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7, U.S.-based, live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. 
If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Okay, we are back and feeling good. You just had to, didn't you? I really, it was right there. <laughs> yeah, it's low-hanging fruit. My apologies to the estate of Nina Simone. Please don't sue me. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with this story, but I guess we can say that it starts on Juneteenth. When um, Chloe Bailey of Chloe and Hallie, who, if you don't know, where have you been? But they are the kind of musical wonder kids, protégés of Beyonce, their album Ungodly Hour, superb in every single way. Where were you? Truly, where were you? Anyway, Chloe, <laughs> one of the sisters of the duo, performed a rendition of Nina Simone's Feeling Good for a Juneteenth special on ABC. And um, this rendition was interesting, to say the she least. She looks great. She's in like a full-on black bodysuit. She looks absolutely incredible. And so she's wearing this, this incredible outfit. She's... In a room alone, as most kind of pandemic era performances are for specials now. And she's just throwing it back to feeling good. That's it. That's it. I'm, <laughs> there's no other way to describe she's it. She's quite literally feeling good. Yes. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me. And I'm feeling. Okay, the literal range. No, those like, bass notes, those yeah. mistletoe, the literal mm-hmm. range. This is not me appropriating this phrase. She, I'm literally commenting on the the range of notes which she sings in this cover. <laughs> you will hear no dispute from me. Chloe has a set of pipes on her. But the thing about this performance and the thing about this song and the cover of it is that I'm so sorry, but it's really giving me, like, college burlesque troupe, but with a budget. Like, I love her so much, but I cannot lie and say that I saw this video coming across my TL, and I did not, I can't lie and say I didn't start laughing. I fully did. It's just, like... (laughs) It did prompt me to Google the Fifty Shades of Grey soundtrack because I was convinced, absolutely convinced, that a sexy cover of Feeling Good was on (laughs) in one of those movies. It was not. I invented this in my head. It wasn't Last Holiday, the iconic movie with Queen Latifah. But it's (laughs) just the thought of Fifty Shades of Grey in the song. It's just really funny. The combination of it being for a Juneteenth special, just reminded me of this absolutely iconic Vine and how this performance was kind of a non-ironic version of it. We're going to play this Vine. I'm going to apologize in advance because you're going to have this stuck in your head for the next two weeks. I was born by the river, river, brick, brick. I was born by the river. I was shaking that ass, bending over, popping pizza. I was making that cab pop. <laughs> Rachel's gone. <laughs> Down for the count. I literally, I listened to that vine in preparation for this episode, and I still like fully. <laughs> it's 
cannot stop laughing because like that's what this that's the exact vibe that this performance gave me and what it gave a lot of the internet clearly because after this performance video drops on twitter like people kind of just you know roast her but like not in a like a malicious way but just on like a you just you know it's objectively you pop, funny. You, you, she's you popping booty to Nina Simone. Like, what's going on here? Just feeling herself in her cat suit alone with, I assume, a smattering of crew members and masks operating cameras. Yeah, it's just so funny. Like, it just imagine showing up to like I don't know, like a dedication ceremony for Juneteenth, and you're like, "There's Chloe, just you know, absolutely living her best life with this Fifty Shades s cover." Chloe and Hallie actually used to share an Instagram account and in relatively recent internet history have now established independent internet brands. And Chloe getting shamed for how she dresses and the photograph she posts. I mean, do we still say slut shaming in 2021? Because that's that's, I think, a good way to describe like what she experiences online. Exactly. And I want to make a distinction between like the kind of original reaction I saw and like the that where kind this of is level going, where you can tell this is going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the first reaction I saw is like fully aware of the way in which like Chloe is getting slut shamed. It's like most of the reaction I see is from black women themselves. And it's just like playfully clowning on her in the way you would like your cousin. Like it's like no one is slut shaming her. It's just like this is a fucking hilarious thing. This is a non-ironic version of like popping pussy to Sam Cooke. But like <laughs> Then the internet gets a hold of it and it stops being fun. Like it it fully stops being fun because then people earnestly are yelling about how Clay's performance was like too sexy and denigrating the good wholesome name of one Nina Simone. I have which, a question. Wait, yeah. What do they think feeling good was no, about? I'm just like, did you listen to the words of that song? Like, it's not like, you know, Chloe chose strange fruit or some shit. Like, that would actually oh be fucked God. up. Oh, my God. Like, no. Like, she picked the song that had a vibe. And also, let's be real here. Nina Simone, like, would have either laughed at this performance in, like, a non-malicious way or like fully supported it because miss simone at one point said my attitude towards sex was that we should be having it all the time sex positive is underselling it i'm tired reading that all the time (laughs) i'm just like miss miss simone (laughs) but she like she famously danced naked in a nightclub in liberia and so for this kind of online backlash to be like how dare you besmirch the legacy of Nina Simone by being sexy. Like, you, ma'am, are besmirching the legacy of Nina Simone by saying that she is With not your sexy. ignorance, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I really wish this was the end of the story, but um, at this point in the saga, the ghost of Nina Simone weighs in on Twitter. <laughs> not the ghost. <laughs> <laughs> the estate of Nina Simone tweets its thoughts about the Chloe performance in a, a now deleted kind of shady tweet. It was a gif of Nina Simone. The text said, eh, girl, sit down. And the tweet is now nowhere to be found. But of course, you can find it everywhere online. But I mean, this is the thing. Nina Simone died in 2003. Twitter was launched in 2006. For what reason is there a official Nina Simone Twitter account that's not just tweeting like about what Nina Simone's music is currently being used in, but kind of is tweeting in the voice of Nina Simone as if Nina Simone is alive. 
Because someone at the estate of Nina Simone can see the future and knew that decades later, Juneteenth would become federalized as a holiday and that a young pop star, R&B star, would make a sexy cover of Feeling Good and they would need to weigh in. I really wish that person at the Nina Simone estate would use their uh, powers of prescience for something better than this. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's sort of funny to when you read through the tweets on the estate of Nina Simone account because they're like, you know, the more recent ones are not super voicey. There's a recent tweet about how they very proudly licensed feeling good uh, for a dove commercial. (laughs) So it was Uh, very jarring. Yeah. A dove commercial. So someone at the estate of Nina Simone realizes that this tweet was a bad idea. The tweet gets deleted and that's the end of the story, right? Uh Uh-uh. Here's where shit gets messy. Nina Simone's granddaughter, Rihanna Simone Kelly, comes through to defend Chloe, but that's not just it. She also adds approximately 17 layers to the drama. So the first tweet from Kelly goes like, Everyone's coming at Chloe Bailey for her performance, but what y'all don't understand is that Grandma was a free-spirited woman herself. She would have loved that performance as much as I do. Relax, Chloe killed it. Goes on to refer to her grandmother as a motherfucking badass woman who did what she wanted to when she wanted to, which, again, this could be the end, but it's not. It could be, but it's not. Approximately some... So after she defends Chloe, she quote tweets this tweet from a rando that says, Nina Simone passed away April 21st, 2003, and Twitter launched July 15th, 2006. Why would her estate even make an account for her? Like, promoting posthumous projects and whatnot is fine, but actually trying to impersonate and interact is very weird. Simone Kelly then comes in with a quote tweet saying, Nina's granddaughter here. My family doesn't run her estate anymore. It was taken from us and given to white people. Our family name was dragged in the media. We get no royalties, nothing. Want to hold someone accountable? Ask Kamala Harris why she came from my family? Hashtag Nina Simone. Well, now I'm hooked. Nina Simone and Kamala Harris in the same sentence? So this prompted me and you to do some research. This was the point at which I think we both saw the tweets and said, oh, it's time to pull up a magnifying glass. (laughs) Time to take out our little inspector hat. (laughs) Uh, And and try and figure out what exactly Rihanna Simone Kelly is talking about and why uh, she has invoked the name of V. POTUS. After Nina Simone died, her daughter, so that's Rihanna Simone Kelly's mother, Lisa Simone Kelly, was put in charge of the estate of Nina Simone. Nina Simone's final wishes were that her wealth be used to fund musical education for children in Africa. If that sounds vague, take it up with Nina Simone. (laughs) (laughs) Fight a ghost if you want. In 2013, though, Lisa Simone Kelly steps down from this role in a fairly public legal battle, she's accused of breaching fiduciary duty, allegedly diverting funds, including a reported uh, $1.5 million into her own bank account, uh, per a report from the Daily Beast, who looked at some of the legal filings in the case. Which, shout out to the Daily Beast for verifying these legal records that were floating around on Twitter because the internet loves to be a sleuth. So... 
where Kamala Harris comes in is she at this point is attorney general of the state of California. So this case is under her. And uh, at one point, according to the Daily Beast, she wants to surcharge Lisa Simone Kelly almost six million dollars and then two and a half million dollars in interest, like a very large sum of money. Scientifically, I would say a lot of fucking money. It eventually ends with an agreement between both parties. Kelly no longer is involved with the estate. She loses her rights to her mother's work. And then probably most importantly related to what her daughter is now tweeting, Lisa Simone Kelly uh, can no longer say or even imply that she is connected to her mother's uh, work, to her mother's estate. Exactly. And so this battle happens in 2013. It is reopened when Rihanna, the granddaughter of Nina Simone, opens up about it in detail over the weekend on Twitter. She, in a... <laughs> it's a lot a of... Patented, it's a large thread. A patented move, tweeted, deleted, and then started tweeting again. <laughs> uh, because she had to check with her family to make sure it was okay. Because again... This legal battle in 2013 specifies that her mother is not allowed to say that she has any affiliation with Nina Simone's legacy or estate. So this Twitter thread comes out. It um, immediately goes viral. Yeah, she makes a lot of very serious claims. You know, she talks Mm -hmm. about that the estate of Nina Simone is in, quote, shambles, that her family no longer owns any, any of Nina Simone's work, uh, that her mother almost killed herself from the depression related to the legal battles. And then she also tweets, you know, while we're just asking. Oh, I forgot Ms. about this part. Oh, yeah. This she's, part. Like, she's like, while we're just asking Kamala Harris, like, why she's done all these things to my family. Allegedly. Allegedly. That's me. I'm the lawyer for <laughs> ICYMI. She also says, let's ask Kamala Harris why a Nina Simone song was saying at the inauguration to swear her in as VP, which, uh, yeah, John Legend did perform <laughs> at the televised inaugural ball singing Nina Simone's you know Feeling Good. <laughs> I mean, speaking of pandemic musical events where you have one artist it's alone, I think John Legend is like playing a piano on what, the, like, the Lincoln Memorial on the, on the National Mall. <laughs> A new life for me. And I'm feeling But I mean, you have to admit that knowing the way that Kamala is involved in this fucking like lawsuit for her to have a Nina Simone song play to her inauguration is a little bit shady. (laughs) I kind of love it. So at this point, Rihanna Simone Kelly's mother posts a video on Instagram. I support her 1,000%. I support everything she's saying. She's speaking her truth. She's speaking the truth of our family. She also supported Chloe Bailey's interpretation of Feeling Good, which I second. I think she did an amazing job. Have you seen the documentary What Happened, Miss Simone? Yes, I have. I actually, I really like that documentary. Uh, but that documentary is not super complimentary to Nina Simone and her relationship with her daughter, if I remember correctly. 
Right. I mean, that's one of the, it's a few years old now, but one of the things I remember enjoying about it or finding enriching about it is it does paint a fairly comprehensive picture, right? You, you, you know, Lisa talked about her mother as being abusive and that Nina Simone abandoned her when she moved to Liberia. She calls her mother a monster. And also in equal measure talks about her mother's gifts and talent and, and the music she shared with the world. When mom would see you cry, she knew she could push your buttons. That's what she wanted. And I would not give her that satisfaction. When she would hit me, I would look her dead in her face. And she like, you better cry. You better cry. I wouldn't do it. You get this kind of complete picture, which is what I was thinking about when <laughs> Rihanna Simone Kelly tweets a second thread that offers a different set of allegations about how the legal proceedings in 2013 actually went down, according to her. She says a lot. And it's plainly kind of refuting the Twitter sleuths who over the weekend have just been like pulling court document after court document and like circulating them on Twitter and saying, actually, Miss Rihanna Simone Kelly, your mother was embezzling. Like, that's why you don't have anything to do with your grandmother's estate. And there's a lot of speculation, actually, that Rihanna Simone Kelly didn't know about this kind of court case drama and that that's why she did this Twitter thread and that, like, maybe no one informed her that her mother was embezzling, which is somewhat paternalistic. And in this second thread, she kind of directly addresses that and says that her mother never embezzled funds, that her being stripped of her title as a state administrator was a calculated legal move on Kamala's part because, and I'm quoting directly from a tweet here, in the revoked will Kamala was using, which is a whole other story unto itself. Tell us, tell the story, please, Rihanna. <laughs> My mom was protected in every way from litigation, especially she used attorneys and accountants to help her run the estate, which she did. Mom being forced to resign would strip her of her protection. Simone Kelly also says that since Nina Simone's estate was French, since Nina Simone was a French resident, the U.S. government actually had no right to be involved. I'm not a lawyer. I don't. We, we have established we are not lawyers, <laughs> not mathematicians, not scientists. I think the best way to sum up that second thread is that uh, Rihanna Simone Kelly refutes all of the claims that are running around Twitter and have been reported about this 2013 legal proceeding and then offers up her own set of allegations about what actually went down. And uh, that's pretty much where it stands as of right now, is this second thread kind of taking over for the first thread. And I would like us all to recall that this began with Chloe Bailey throwing it back to feeling good and ended with none of us feeling good. <laughs> All right, that's the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so please subscribe. It's free. And the best way to make sure you never miss an episode, which Rachel cover yours, I'm going to say it again, is the best way to make sure you stay feeling good. Please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod. It's a great place to DM us your questions, topics you might like on the show. And you can also always email us ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Jasmine Ellis and Daniel Schrader. Our supervising producer is Derek John. Forrest Wickman is Slate's culture editor. Gabe Brock is editorial director of audio. See you online. Or not. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 